0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington.
1: All right, everyone, I am here with Sarah Brown. Sarah is an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Rhode Island. Sarah, welcome to the Twimmel AI
0: Podcast. Hi.
1: Great to have you on the show and looking forward to digging into our conversation about some of your work on kind of the systematic level approach to fairness in machine learning. Before we dig into that, I'd love to have you share a bit about your background and how you came to work in that field.
2: Yeah. So I am in my first semester as a professor, so I'm just getting started with my own lab, but our first year. And I did a PhD at Northeastern in machine learning. In grad school, I actually, or my degrees are actually electrical engineering. So I did signal processing and then statistical signal processing is the same thing as machine learning. So I became a computer scientist after I graduated somehow. Um, (laughs) But in grad school, I actually worked with neuroscientists. I collaborated with affective neuroscientists who study emotion and how our brains create emotion. But that involved dealing with a lot of uncertainty because we really don't know what our brains do. And so I got used to building machine learning systems and machine learning models that could help us understand data that was collected with a lot of unknowns about what happened, how we got there. We don't know exactly what our brains are doing to do that. And so trying to make sense of this data and developing machine learning models that help us make sense of it in my PhD. And that was kind of while the fair machine learning stuff started happening in the community. And we started seeing those first few papers and I realized that a lot of that work was actually something, one, one, it's important to me sort of values-wise, but I thought also this idea that we don't really know exactly what's going on or why. Mm -hmm. Similar problems to the type of kind of there's high uncertainty, there's sort of high impact, right? If we draw the wrong conclusions in a scientific study, that's problematic for the things they make down the line. Um, If we draw the wrong conclusions about how we're, um, or we have machine learning algorithms that draw the wrong conclusions about people, those cause biases. And so these kind of, um, the transition there was was that I believe that they're sort of similar techniques and that a lot of the techniques I learned for dealing with uncertainty in the neuroscience data would apply here. I really made the switch over while I was a postdoc at UC Berkeley. I was participated in the AFOG group there, the Algorithmic Fairness and Opacity group. And got to have those great discussions and this sort of weekly meetings about how we could think about this. And that group was really exciting because it was not only computer scientists talking about this, not only machine learning people, but it was also legal scholars and social scientists. So we had people from three very different backgrounds Mm -hmm. kind of all sitting together and figuring out how to think about this. And that really shaped my thinking that we want to, you know, the theory is cool. I love reading it. But I think that what's gonna make the big difference in making systems more fair is to take a step back and look at how the different pieces interact and what can we do from there. And so that's how I landed at sort of my current research agenda where I'm looking at how do we make machine learning more fair, not strictly sticking with like the one machine learning, the learning algorithm that we have um, and trying to make that output something that makes fair decisions. But if we take a step back and we think about how the data comes into the system, how people interact with the systems at different points in the pipeline, And how people have a lot of expertise about these things that aren't computer scientists and that aren't, that's not well measured in our data. We know the way that discrimination works in the world to some extent, but data doesn't capture that. So how can we kind of think about merging these together and taking a step back to build sort of more robust solutions is the general range of questions that I'm, I'm looking at now.
1: Nice. And when you think about that range of questions, is there a particular... Example that you use to articulate not just why this kind of systematic approaches or system level approaches is is required, but you know how the bias is introduced at at different steps. I mean, we could all come up with examples of bias in machine learning, but you've articulated kind of a uh, you know complex systems approach to thinking about it, and I'm curious if you have specific examples.
2: Yeah, so I think one of the things that is you know we it's harmful to say that the bias gets there just because the data is biased and then the learning algorithm has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. But there is bias in the data. And if someone who understands the data looked carefully at the data or somewhere in the domain that the data came from. So we had someone who's a social worker looking at the criminal justice system data before we learned trained algorithms on it. They could tell you what ways that data doesn't match the world or maybe it reinforces stereotypes. And so one of the projects I have we've built a tool called Wiggum, and it's designed to look for a specific type of bias pattern in data inspired by Simpson's paradox, hence the name Wiggum. But we built this tool with the idea that you could have a non, someone who's not a programmer, who's not a machine learning person, examining data and looking at what patterns were captured in the data and helping kind of mark which ones are likely to cause problems down the line. And then we can do things, we know things, you know, not only the fair machine learning interventions, but also in some cases capturing more data, whether that's more samples or more features per sample. Getting more data can help prevent kind of some of the the problems down the line or reshaping the problem, choosing a different variable as your target to train a model can change how the bias gets into the system down the line. And so giving tools that help people examine the data with a focus on what types of patterns actually cause bias down the line can kind of help serve like a like a translation layer, right? Because the social scientists could just say those words out of the programmer, but they may not actually, it's all English, but it's not the same <laughs> language. Um, and so, I mean, thinking about how tools can serve, help serve that sort of translation layer, where like the tool is picking up the patterns that the machine learning person knows what to do with. And the, the social scientist or the social worker or whoever is labeling this pattern in the data, not just this sample, but like this pattern in the data might cause problems down the line. We should think about this.
1: So, so you referenced Simpsons Paradox and that that obviously led to Wigum. What is Simpsons Paradox and what is Wigum?
2: <laughs> yeah, so Simpsons Paradox is when you partition, so you have some trend in a data set. So maybe two variables are positively correlated, but when you split the data into different groups, they have a negative correlation. Or one of the canonical examples is UC Berkeley's admission data in like the 70s, I think, and they were worried that they were going to be accused of sexism because at the overall university rate, men were admitted at a much higher rate than women. So a larger percentage of their male applicants were admitted than the percentage of their female applicants that were admitted.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: One of their statistics professors looked at the data and broke it down by department, which is the level at which the decisions were made. So that makes sense to do. Mm-hmm. And when you analyze it per department, Most departments actually admitted a higher percentage of their female applicants than their male applicants. And the sort of like statistical significance of that margin was larger in favor of women at a department by department level than it was at the university level. And the reason this happens is that, again, the timeframe of when this happened changes the fact that this is not true anymore. But at that time, the engineering department admitted basically everybody. So more of their applicants were men than their applicants were female. And their acceptance rate was like 80%. In departments like English, where more of the applicants were ma- female than male, the admissions rate was like 10%. Mm-hmm. And so you get this sort of imbalance and this flip. So when you mm. look at the data overall, you draw the wrong conclusion about what's going on
3: mm-hmm.
2: at the actual level. And so we built a tool that looks for uh, a bunch of different types of trends. So both sort of these rank-based trends, sort of taking the average of a rate of something or a linear regression sort of trend. We can also look at classification rates and a couple other trend types, and it looks for if there are partitions of the data where that trend is not true, or the trend is very different than the aggregate data, Mm -hmm. or if there's partitions of the data that just have very different trends from one another. Um, And then it highlights those for a user to kind of explore and kind of examine which ones might be problematic and which ones are, of course, that's supposed to be that way. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Are the partitions? that, actually, before that question, you you referenced that Wiggum's has something to do with Simpsons Paradox. What's that? Yeah. So
2: we named our tool uh, Wiggum because the police officer in the Simpsons is named Detective Ah. Wiggum. So we (laughs) named it after, yeah. Got it. Got it.
1: (laughs) Got it. Okay. (laughs) So now that we've established that, (laughs) when you apply this tool, is it looking at kind of natural partitions of the data, uh, meaning you've got some categorical variables like the department and it's looking at partitions. There are more statistical partitions that may or not be kind of natural reflections of the way humans might think about the data.
2: It can do both. So you can, it, you can tell it that some of the categorical variables in the data should be used to split the data as partitions. Mm-hmm. It can also take intersections or combinations of those variables. So let's say you had a a race variable and a gender variable. It could look at combinations of race and gender and split Mm -hmm. into each of those partitions and check things out. And you can also have it search for clusters in the data. And so it'll it'll apply a clustering algorithm. You don't have to, you know, we use a clustering algorithm. It doesn't require you to say how many clusters to look for. It'll find them automatically. Mm -hmm. And it can look for clusters in the data and then show you which of those clusters that were unknown or unlabeled partitions of the data that have these like varied trends. And because that's a lot of different trends and patterns it could look for, it then also can rank them for you based on sort of which ones have the largest distance between the aggregate and the subgroup or the largest maximum distance between two subgroups within a a pair of variables or set of trends.
1: Mm -hmm. And so rewind for us the connection between this particular tool and this broader theme of thinking about fairness from a systems perspective.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the idea here is this is one particular way that kind of biases or, or potential biases can be kind of discovered in data where one partition of the data behaves very differently than another partition of the data or the aggregate trend of the data. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the aggregate trend is what a classifier is on average going to pick up. Yeah. And so if there's one subgroup that's doing something very different, then you need to know that before you train your model. And this tool allows for, because it provides both that there's like a kind of graphical interface and it has a programming API interface to it too, but Because it is a sort of visual interface, it can help someone who doesn't know how to program the data for them, like, you know, implement machine learning. Someone else that has the correct expertise to identify which of those patterns is something that's a bias we need to worry about. And maybe, oh, we could collect more data for this or whatever. So you can kind of use it back to that idea of an interface that helps someone with the right domain expertise help support the development of a system, rather than leaving programmers to make that decision on their own or, or machine learning engineers to make that decision on their own when, you know, we aspire to know enough about our, our data, but we don't always, ha- aren't always best equipped to make those decisions. So this tool yeah. kind of helps bring more people in and give them an interface that they can label and annotate what's going on.
1: Okay. Yeah, one of the interesting questions that I think exists and kind of surrounds this space is the proper role of tools. You know, so many companies, I think maybe... Every large, you know, tech company has published a machine learning fairness toolkit of some sort or another. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, so we're kind of flush with tools, but are we flush with the knowledge to use these tools and how do we create that knowledge? I'm, I'm curious how that, you know, how you think about that broader problem of making systems more fair, relative to this tools question.
2: Yeah, that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot and kind of trying to better shape ideas on is that I think that tools are going to be a necessary part of this because we, I mean, everything we do is through tools Mm -hmm. at some level.
3: yeah.
2: Um, And I really believe that if we design the tools carefully, they can serve that function of um, that translation layer. Like I was thinking they can kind of be this interface between people that have different types of expertise and we can, you know, share information back and forth. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if people are like, oh, there's this IBM tool in this fair kit that just like, oh, we can just take their fair classifiers and then we don't have to do anything else. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that can just be more of the sort of solutionism and sort of. So it is like this really fine line of like, yeah. how do you. Um, and I think that, that toolkit is great. I teach it with my students all the time because I think that that should be the first thing you check. Of course, like it is there. You should use it but it's maybe not enough. And kind of how do we understand that position of enough, I think is something that um, as a researcher, I don't necessarily have a great, great answer for yet. As a teacher, I tend to think about it as like, I want my students to have domain expertise in something besides computer science and machine learning,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: right? Like we can't even have the ethical conversations about how it's going to work if they don't know what some other part of the world looks like with enough depth.
3: Right, right. Um,
2: And so thinking about really like, We're going to have to think about things in interdisciplinary ways, even though that's way harder. But the tools question is, it's a good one. And it's something I think we're going to have to keep wrestling with as a field. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned that some of your work relates to, this is actually in our pre-conversation. Some of your work relates to the way psychologists think about some of these issues and, and running these kinds of experiments. Speaking of interdisciplinary approaches, can you elaborate a bit on that?
2: Yeah, I have an ongoing collaboration with uh, Malik Boykin at Brown University, who's a social psychologist. Okay, his research area is trying to understand how people and human biases work, and how humans express and attain and develop their racist and sexist personalities, you know, positions, and all these other things. And so, what we're working on together is how do people understand fairness definitions, but more really like what are people's preferences among fairness definitions. And when do they prefer one over another? And even deeper, kind of what social factors cause people to drive? Because we aren't assuming that we're going to take like the best vote. We're just going to take, oh, this is the favorite fairness definition. Everyone should just use this one. Mm -hmm. But it's really from a place of we assume that people with different backgrounds and are going to have different preferences on fairness. And people will have different preferences of different types of fairness. um, The sort of statistical types of fairness in different situations. And when and kind of measuring what those look like.
1: Interesting. So what's really interesting about that is that, you know, this question of, you know, so we, you start talking about fairness and you very quickly get to, well, there's lots of different definitions of fairness. And I tend about to think about it in the context of, okay, we want to apply this as a business, right? There's some business problem. And we need to think about kind of this portfolio of possible fairness definitions and see which makes the most sense for our particular business problem. And you know, maybe there's no right or wrong answer in all that, but there are kind of more right and more wrong answers based on some theoretical alignment with you know our, some pure statement of our business problem. And what you're kind of suggesting is there are also a whole spectrum of biases that might lead one to a particular definition that don't have anything to do with the problem and is another layer of bias that we need to root out in these systems that we're talking about.
2: Yeah. So there's been some some prior work by the people that did measurements of kind of what people prefer for fairness definitions. Mm-hmm. And those results have shown that people, if it's um, like a low-stakes situation, they'll care about the fairness. But if it's a high-stakes situation, like a life or death, like a medical, like a cancer treatment, medical high-stakes situation, they only care about the most accurate. They're okay with more bias if it's a high-stakes situation. They'd rather have the accuracy rather than the fairness. Also, that, you know, when people are given a free-form space to kind of justify why they picked a particular algorithm as being more fair, they will plainly state that they chose the one that favors the group that they belong to. Hmm. I'm a white person, so I prefer the algorithm that has higher accuracy on white people. Mm. Plain statement, someone put that in a, a, you know, in a form and these aren't surprising to social psychologists, right? They, mm-hmm. they study biases as the a thing they know, but how do we kind of continue this conversation of like, we probably shouldn't just use crowdsourced de- declarations of fair in machine learning because <laughs> we know that that's going to be biased and yeah. like all these sort of discrimination things. But even if we're kind of having these policy discussions about, because, you know, lawmakers are aware that our algorithms are biased now, we're going to have policy discussions about this kind of being able to really clearly articulate like these are the ways in which people's preferences and, and sentiments on fairness and bias align with social traits is going to be important to note that we can't just trust, you know, there's not going to be some like forward reasoning inductive from first principles. <laughs> this is the most fair thing. We've We've established that. We also can't go to sort of these crowdsource things. And so really understanding the space of how people's understandings very, I think, is really interesting because not only is it going to be a matter of like how do what do we design, but like if we have to give people we, we do have to give people explanations. Mm-hmm. If they have different definitions of what's fair, then their like satisfaction with the definitions is going to be of the, mm-hmm. the explanations is going to vary. So this is like a a whole dimension of the problem that I did not come up with on my own. He yeah. was like, I want to know how people like you talked about fairness and like that there's different definitions. I don't think people are going to like them all. Let's explore that. So we're building up the experimental tools and stuff. And so it's this, this whole suite of new questions that I wouldn't have ever got to without the, um, the collaboration there.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. When you first referred to kind of crowdsourcing your fairness definitions, my immediate reaction was, well, who would do that? But then you think, well, kind of like that's politics <laughs> and like social engagement on a large scale. Like uh, we do that all the time. <laughs>
2: we do yeah and there's I mean there's other work that does kind of builds a thing to about have people tell you what they prefer for fairness as if we can then and and how to learn a like group definition of fairness from a bunch of different individual people's definitions as if that would allow us to learn sort of a hybrid definition of some sort that's rather than the, me sitting in my office writing my own definition, mm-hmm. we ask a bunch of different people and pull those all together. can we use that? And so I think understanding how different people's identities and things Influence the way they would respond to things like that is really important to probably prevent that type of that system from being <laughs> dominant and used commonly, but mm-hmm. also just to shape the discussions and kind of understand. Um, and from his perspective as a social psychologist, you know, he studies this bias in people, anyways. So mm-hmm. this this algorithmic formalization of it like gives him a really rich area to just sort of study bias um, mm-hmm. in a very like salient present, like the present moment in time kind of environment to study it in.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you envision a particular problem domain to apply this kind of analysis to?
2: Yeah. So our first set of questions, we're going to use sort of the compass scenario. It'll be about a hypothetical location. It won't be about Broward County, but we'll think about that sort of, the city's going to endorse, you know, the city's thinking about having a recidivism risk tool. What would you think about the fairnesses? But we can also reframe that question in terms of what, different people consider for if it's if the, the algorithm is going to make admissions decisions or if it's going to give out loans or we can think and so we'll be able to compare not only how different people where we're thinking about different ways you know how not only how different people react to it, but how they their decisions change across domains mm-hmm. and there's some evidence that it that it is that it does vary somewhat but not strongly and so we're looking forward to really digging into some more of those questions
1: Mm -hmm. And in that first example of the compass style recidivism, do you have preliminary results or insights into how this question of fairness definition plays out across different groups?
2: Not yet. We've been building up a kind of more custom way of asking the questions. So
1: the
2: the thing we're trying to get at too is not only... um, do people prefer like one specific sort of binary choice between one definition or the other is like, how can they explore the space in between definitions? And so that's what my students at the you know, machine learning students have been working on is how do we learn in this sort of like interpolate between one definition of fairness and another definition of fairness and present those options to people so they can kind of endorse their own custom definition of fair mm-hmm. and kind of see what people prefer in that space.
1: Mm -hmm. And maybe this goes back to the, you know, some kind of paradox of tooling or something like that. But these tools will have these, you know, a, a suite of definitions, you know, towards which you can apply some analysis and determine fairness. And I'm thinking of the, you know, you're asking someone to create a, you know, a linear combination of different fairness definitions. Can you then apply a a tool or some kind of algorithm to that? Or do you have to then come up with your own algorithmic approach to measuring this mixture of, you know, fairness relative to a mixture or weighted average of fairness definitions? Like, how does that work?
2: So that's what one of my students is working on right now is where, like, we have written an objective function and we're trying to see how well we can learn that. And we know that You know, sort of provably, we can't have all the definitions at once or even two definitions. We can't have them both at the same time. Yeah. Kind of what are the different ways we can move move our decision boundary between the decision boundary we get for one definition of fairness to the other definition of fairness? Like, what are the interim states? And... So, yeah, that's what we're working on right now is trying to get those those models finished and learn and kind of develop so we can put them into a mm-hmm. the psychology experiment. And kind of the prerequisite work to getting up to those experiments is we also we need to be able to know that people understand what we're asking them to do. And so uh-huh. we need to think about a lot of terminology, like making sure that we're posing all the terms in the exact same matches because you could accidentally measure just that people don't like negativity mm-hmm. because people people are hard to measure. And it so goes <laughs> back to why some of the other things get unfair in the first place. But one of the first things we wrote together, like me and the psychologist and their students, kind of we we wrote a paper. We critique, or they led the critique, and I did the machine learning kind of explanations as to what we were doing and how there's a lot of like judgment, decision making systems, sort of knowledge about what will distract people when you ask them a question, mm-hmm. and like they'll always choose the more concrete thing or they'll always choose the more positive frame thing rather than necessarily their actual <laughs> preference, and so just right. working through all the different ways we have to set up our tool to measure the questions that we want to actually answer is where we're at right now.
1: Wow. Um,
2: which is, it's been a fun learning experience kind of norming and like having our students kind of work right at this intersection has been, yeah. has
1: been good. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I'm imagining a scenario where some combination of where you kind of get people at some middle type of fairness definition and it arises out of this combination of fairness definition, but it's really like you do—you find that it's a new thing. Like it's its own fairness definition that you know we couldn't express before. We didn't really know how to express before. And if that's something that you might anticipate happening or.
2: Yeah. So this idea of trading off between two things is not new in machine learning. Mm-hmm. We trade off between parameters all the time. Trade off control yeah. parameters exist in lots of algorithms. And so we're using sort of those same toolings and we're applying them to different things. But this idea of mm-hmm. like a Pareto optimal front where you can, or, you know, you can have a trade-off, you can position it as like a curve and you say, well, this is the point that's a maximum across kind of balancing all of them. So I anticipate something like that may exist, or it could be something kind of really different. And I think this idea of well, what we're finding is that this idea of trying to trying to trade off between and kind of interpolate between them, is also asking us the question of like, when we have, if we, in situations where a fair classifier is not as accurate as the most accurate possible classifier, given our training data. And now there could be biases in the data and we're measuring with respect to noisy labels or something, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that situation where it looks like that, um, there hasn't been as much analysis of either, of also of like, which are the samples? Like which people get a different decision at the accurate one versus the fair one? kind of what, where are they like outliers in some way? And so we're also kind of looking at some of those questions and trying to understand a little better um, what that means. And can we project those changes back into the real world? Like the feature space is more of a real world than the prediction space. Like the label is a label, but the features we know about a person tell more about what's going on. And so we're, we're looking at that as well and trying to understand kind of how that helps us mitigate what's going on or maybe that inspires us to think about new ways of formulating the problem. You know, I think Mm -hmm. one of the really interesting results, not from my group, but from, from others is this idea of label bias, where if you assume that some percentage of the labels are incorrect, then the fair classifier actually recovers the true labels rather than the like optimal, not fair classifier. Cause that's recovering Mm -hmm. your noisy bias labels, Mm -hmm. but you can use a fair, a fair classifier to recover the truth. So are there more results like that? are things mm-hmm. that we're, we're also kind of looking for in the machine learning side of this problem. While we try to figure out how to ask people about it, we're yeah. getting some nice machine learning questions out of it too.
1: And just expanding on that last point you made, is is part of your work like looking at a different problem and just identifying kind of piece by piece where all of the different biases can come into play and trying to decompose it from there?
2: Yeah, I think actually that kind of approach does summarize. It's not necessarily terminology that I've used before, but I think that does really summarize kind of the approach mm-hmm. that students and I are taking in that, you know, we want to understand why. And I think that comes back to my training. I was applying machine learning, working with affective neuroscientists who want to understand how our brains create emotion. So an accurate prediction wasn't enough. Uh, we had to know why or how. We had to have interpretable models. We had to be able to explain sort of uh, give the psychologist enough to kind of give this sort of mechanism to what the brain was really doing to get to these answers, to make the predictions. And so I'm probably using kind of those approaches where we want to understand why and really investigate what's going on in order to make better decisions and better algorithms.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that again, prior to uh, starting some of the work that you're doing in this uh, compass style scenario, uh, applying optimal transport. Can you... Talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, with a PhD student who's also at Brown. I was at Brown as a postdoc before I started here too. And so I okay. saw a couple collaborators over there. With some PhD students at Brown, we developed an optimal transport-based bias measurement. But our idea here was there's lots of fairness definitions. We don't know which one to use and they have all their problems. Mm-hmm. But when we think about how we sort of socially say that's fair or that's unfair, it's usually relative to something, right? And so what we wanted to do was have a nice sort of distribution-based way of measuring how far away a given situation was from another one that we think is fair and sort Mm -hmm. of use that as our measurement of bias. And so we chose to use the water distance and optimal transport as a way of conceptualizing that. And what optimal transport does is it finds the sort of most cost-effective or efficient way of mapping a set of points into another. So you can think about probability distributions as like a collection of little masses and you wanna move them onto a different set of masses. And we use the formulation that allows us to split the masses. So you don't have to map one person onto a specific other person, but you can map person one, and can be like 40% onto this person and 60% onto that person. Mm -hmm. So this framework allows us to kind of measure, we get both a, a measurement of bias. We also get this mapping which is sort of like who you can kind of think of it like it, it gives you answers, like a question of like, who would you rather be if you if your reference point is sort of the predictions under this algorithm and the second distribution is the true outcomes? Like, who would you rather have been to get your true, like the true outcome you wanted? And so, you know, we get stories out of that from the compass data that are like, well, a black person with no priors would have rather been a white person with two priors to get their true outcome. Because white people with, with, you know, white people with priors were treated so much better by this algorithm than black people, whether they had priors or not.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and so that gives, um, I think it's sort of an intuitive, nice way of like kind of measuring the amount of bias in a system. It's also nice because it's this sort of interpretable kind of, we can tell stories and kind of play with things in different ways. And we all, we're also able to kind of use this to think about sort of how much potential for like recourse or changing the, someone's feature positions. There are because you can change the sort of distances. There's sort of two distances in this metric. And so you can change one of them to only use some of the features and say, well, what if we only consider how far away, um, how different the person gets mapped to in terms of features that are possible to change? Okay. So like can they move just a little bit in the features that they could change, or do they have to move really far in the features that they could change? Or can they only are they moving completely among features they can't change at all? Like they're age i mean you can't change your you can't actively change your age you just have to wait for it to change right mm-hmm. and so it provides sort of one definition that does a lot of different things related to fairness and bias and measurement and so we we thought that was a nice formulation way of thinking about what's really going on in these in these judgments that we're making about our algorithms
1: mm-hmm. what are your plans to extend that work do you apply it to additional cases or where do you go with it? And, and my assumption is that proving that the compass, you know, algorithm was not fair. wasn't the goal because. <laughs>
2: right. No, no, no. So that was, I mean, so our goal really was to have sort of one measure that we could use to talk about a lot of different dimensions of the problem. Yeah. Largely so that we can kind of compare. Cause right now we have different definitions, but they're kind of in terms of different terms. And like, how do you compare one to another so we have this first paper that's submitted and we are has a couple of different case studies sort of in it. And what we're looking at now is, can we more formally talk about how we can recover basically kind of all of the different fairness definitions and what do they mean in terms of this definition so we can kind of use that as a way of interpreting things? Meaning
1: rewrite some set of fairness definitions in the terminology and in the framework that Optimal Transport offers?
2: Yeah, and so if we can write all of those different definitions in terms of the optimal transport formulation, we can then kind of use these optimal transport maps mm-hmm. to interpret different fairness definitions as well. And because the optimal transport, like the map gives us like a relationship with the recourse problem. We can kind of also relate to that as well. And then we're also thinking about, can we combine this idea with the measurement of people's perceptions idea as well as like, so can we, um, You know, if we because this is sort of relative to relative fairness of the the outputs relative to some sort of judgment, can we kind of use this optimal transport framework to measure the difference between two different people's judgment of what's fair or between if we kind of have multiple different runs of an algorithm, can we kind of map between all of them and see sort of what groups are getting treated variably? The other nice thing with this framework is that it kind of gives us a bridge to talk about both individual level fairness, where we you're saying like it's fair if similar people are treated similarly, and group wise fairness, where we you're saying like groups of people should be treated similarly. This gives us like one framework to kind of talk about both of those, and so we're going to explore that form- that formally a little bit more de- a little bit mm-hmm. more deeply as well.
3: Nice.
1: Any other kind of upcoming work on your horizon, other areas that you're excited about exploring in this field?
2: I think really right now is um, kind of turning through some of these, some some more of these results of the areas. We kind of got little pieces started and we kind of got these, these first things. I think um, also going back to the tools question, we've got this first tool that sort of helps on the exploratory side, but we don't have any tool that sort of helps with the intervention part of it yet. And so can we think about tools that kind of help, you know, maybe have that domain expert who knows about the problem and that could tell you kind of, they can tell you kind of qualitatively. They maybe can't tell you, they can't write equations for you. They maybe can't give you actual data that fits into our algorithms as they are today, but maybe they could give you some information. Can we build from that in ways that allows us to kind of maybe give our models a prior that they can start from that's going to help them sort of avoid bias or other ways that, you know, these Some of these problems are predictable by people with the right expertise, but they're not currently predictable from data. So Mm -hmm. can we bridge that gap is kind of a direction that I'd like to pursue and think about how do we build for that? And how do we prevent the bias before it gets there instead of just measuring it at the output of the system? Awesome.
1: Well, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us to chat about this work on looking at fairness from a a system-wide level. It's super important stuff.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you.